0: Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. It's our summer series, and I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you, the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk, write, or photograph it, but above all, They love it. This week, we're going to chat to some wonderful Americans living life to the full here in France. Forrest and Tanisha are lovers of all things drinking and cocktails, and are both fellow podcasters. Forrest and I had a wonderful chat about all things absence, and Tanisha told us everything we needed to know about the Kia. So, sit back, grab a cocktail if you're listening while traveling or on your way to work. Maybe don't grab a cocktail, but instead turn up the volume as you're in for a delicious episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, episode six of our summer of 2022 series, would you believe? Bon app and enjoy a drink with Forrest Collins. Boris, thanks for joining me on fabulously delicious today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: On to our topic today, which is absinthe. Where does the actual drink derive from? It's a plant, I think. Is that right?
1: Oh, it's a plant. Oh, well, it's a it's a base neutral spirit, and it is. Um, so, what does
0: that mean? A base neutral spirit. So
1: it's it's um, something. It, so that's like it's like vodka or it's like gin, and it's a spirit that's distilled from a base product, and so. In most cases, it's like potatoes for vodka, but it could be grains. It can be anything. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's it's, it's, it's base alcohol.
0: I can't pronounce it. I'm looking at it now. Ab- absinium, absinthe. Ab- I can't you're pronounce it. You're talking
1: about the uh, art- Artemisia absinthium. I, I also can't pronounce it, but you're talking about the wormwood, which is the major, um, Botanical that the grand wormwood that is 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 one of is basically what makes it absinthe. Uh, absinthe has this grand wormwood, which is it's a plant, and um, generally anise and fennel in there. Those are the, kind of the three. Let's get that triad in there. That's going to make it absinthe. And uh, and then there's some other botanicals and herbs that can go in depending on the person's recipe. But absinthe is this base spirit with these three botanicals.
0: And the so this absinium is also in other drinks as well. So it's not just in absinthe; it's in uh, bitters. Is that right?
1: It could be in bitters. I mean, it depends on the yeah. It depends on the recipe for sure. I mean, it depends on the bitters recipe, the vermouth recipe. But it's it's an, it's a, a botanical that could be infused into any. I mean, it could be in gin. You know, I mean, there's there's no like limitations onto what can be added in addition to juniper to gin. So sure, um, it could be in other things as well.
0: Where did absinthe originate from?
1: Well, um, like lots of cocktail and spirits things, there's there's a little bit of murkiness to it, but it's pretty much commonly accepted that it w- originated in um, Switzerland in the late 1700s. Uh, people say it was a doctor, Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, who created it, who was a French doctor in Switzerland. Um, and he created it as also many things, you know, around cocktail and spirits. He created it as a health elixir. So not as something to see a green fairy, but something to, right? To, to improve your health. So all these tonics back in the day were often started that way. They were created by pharmacists, physicians to lift your spirits, uh, if you will. So that is, that's pretty much the accepted theory on on the origins of it. Although I've read that, you know, you have these sort of um, wormwood instilled drinks that were, you know, being created and distilled and prepared like back in Egyptian time.
0: So for those of us that don't know a lot about spirits and things, so if absinthe is made from this Asinium, then so what's gin made out of?
1: So when you say made out of it, um, just to clarify for listeners, because I think sometimes it's it's not confusing. So gin and absinthe and vodka, um, you know, they could all be made from the same base which could be like potatoes or it could be rice or it could be quinoa and so those things are fermented um they're you know they're mashed and fermented and and then a, a a spirit is distilled from them. And I'm not a distiller. So uh, if, if any distillers are listening, I know I'm not using all the proper terms, but a spirit is um, distilled from them, you know, using one of these big stills. And so then you have this just like basic alcohol, like it's like rubbing alcohol, right? It's just like, it's created from this base product, which is not the wormwood that you're talking about, the absentium. Um, And then that product like in the case of gin, that product is put together with um, with juniper berries and then other different botanicals according to the recipe. With vodka, it's usually just left alone. And then with absinthe, it's mixed with the the wormwood and the anise and the fennel and then other botanicals as well. So um, so they, they could be all made from the same base. And to be totally honest, I haven't read the European regulations, which are very dry reading on absinthe. So they may have some restrictions on what you make the base. Spirit from, but all all of these different white spirits like this. Uh, I know absinthe can also be green, but all of these can be made from anything that creates the alcohol. It's the botanicals that you mix with after uh, that give it the flavor. So sorry for that little detour. Yeah, no, I think fabulous. I derailed you. So No, yeah, no, hey, no, anyway. no,
0: that's fabulous. I, um, I'm i a, a little bit upset that you didn't do the dry reading, but apart from that, we're all good. It has a French nickname, which I think it relates to this green fairy. Is that right? Le, what's it? I can't. La verte. La verte. right. Your French pronunciation is, is fantastic. Can
1: I just? No, it's not it? what Thibaut says, but thank you. I'll tell him that you told me that. I'll play this <laughs> podcast for him. See, it's proof. I can pronounce <laughs> things.
0: So there's a lot said about the drink being banned. And I want to talk about this. There's two parts, I think, or two theories as to why it was banned. And the first is uh, about the chemical compound in the drink was it really a uh, hallucinogenic
1: no and I think that that's the biggest misconception but also probably the biggest marketing advantage for um, absinthe because people love the idea that it's gonna ooh, make them see the green fairy absolutely not so people talk about thujone which is a chemical compound that's in um in the grand wormwood uh, being this um not good for you hallucinogenic Etc and so they they said that you could not create these spirits with thujone in it because it's going to make you hallucinate. It's terrible for you. Um, it's not true because thujone is, is, is something that's found in many other things like chartreuse or, um, uh, you know, other things that you drink. And also if you take three sage leaves that has the same amount of thujone as like a whole bottle of absinthe and you're never going to sit and drink a whole, right? So, so it's, you know, it was just sort of this, um, uh, not red herring, but anyway, they just, it's this, this scapegoat that, that they were blaming. But, you know, they, they, there's nothing to that. I mean, we're back to making the same kind of absinthe that they were making pre, pre-ban with the same levels of everything in it. And nobody's going crazy. So the Thujone does not make you hallucinate or go crazy.
0: Okay, but then again, um, I will contribute to that myth because I do remember a night when I put way too many sage leaves in my pork roast and um, there was some happening things going on afterwards. That explains it now. That, that explains
1: it all. Blame it on the same sage leaves sage every leaves. time. Yep.
0: The absolute, yep, that's it. And so the other theory revolves around prohibition and conservative governments banning the drink. Is this possibly more a believable theory?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is possibly more of a believable theory um, because, you know, absinthe also, it's very high in alcohol. So it's, you know, it's higher in alcohol than your standard gin or vodka. You're supposed to be diluting it with quite a bit of water. So, you know, perhaps, I mean, um, you know, in the U.S., there was a lot of prohibition around Everything right. So, um, and uh, in France, it wasn't uh, it, it, the common belief is that it was really more of the wine lobbies that were pushing this. Right, they were using absinthe as a scapegoat because um, they wanted people to be drinking wine and not other spirits. You know, it's it's also that it was kind of a bad target because. People, even though it was very popular in the day and popularized by artists, people weren't necessarily drinking a lot more absinthe than they were drinking other spirits aside from wine. But the common belief is that the wine lobbies in France were pushing really hard to make this ban happen for these kind of fake reasons that it makes you go crazy, it's bad for the health. Um, but, you know, and, and a lot of people probably were having health issues due to absinthe, but... A lot of that had to do with a bad, badly fabricated absinthe, um, people drinking too much, you know, not diluting it with enough water, just like, you know, what might have been happening in Gin Alley in London, you know, during those times, like people were drinking bathtub gin. And of course, they're going to die because you are not a professional distiller, sir. Please don't make your own bathtub gin because you can die. Um, So, but they didn't have the internet back then to read those articles about people who've died from their own moonshine. So, So, you know, so there was... Not any truth to it, but yeah, people were having a problem, but the problem wasn't really absent. It was home distillations or badly dis- distilled products, and then the wine lobby pushing that behind that, using it as a reason.
0: And so you mentioned prohibition. Before. What is uh, prohibition?
1: Well, I mean, prohibition was um, it, uh, it was no longer legal to um, sell or Sell and I don't know if it, consuming is under the law or not, but you know it was no longer legal to make or sell alcohol, and um, you know and that lasted for what ten, 10 throughout the twenties for ten years or so. Um, and however it was, there were some um, kind of loopholes, right? You could still do it for medical reasons, um, and and it wasn't just in the U.S. Like there was quite a prohibition, I believe, in Canada. And, um, and and in other countries as well. I don't know if there's ever been one in Australia, but, um, but I know in a few other countries that, that there have been. So, uh, yeah, it's like basically a ban on alcohol.
0: Yeah, okay. We did have um, – I don't know if we had prohibition in Australia, but I do know that in the area that I lived in in Melbourne, actually, it was known as a dry area. And it still is to this day, as you can tell by the fact that – On one side of uh, a road that is a boundary for this area, on one side of the road there are bars and pubs and on the other side of the road there aren't Um, to this day. So. There are
1: still places like that in Texas as well in the U.S. and maybe other other states in, in the U.S. I don't know because it's all dictated by state law. Uh, but yeah, there's still um, entire counties where you um, where that are dry where you can't buy alcohol and you have to have a special some kind of a special permit to drink a glass of wine in a restaurant there. So yeah, I mean you still have different you still have different ways of moderating people's drinking, right? Like prohibition was the great experiment is what they call it that didn't work. But you know, there's temperance movements and there's places that like you know Norway they. control their drinking by making it really, really crazy expensive. So, you know, I mean, there's different ways that people still try to control what we drink because, you know, drinking is poison at, at, at the base <laughs> and it can be dangerous. So,
0: uh, Do they have prohibition in France? Do we know?
1: I don't know of a prohibition in France. I was thinking about that as I was talking. I'm like, I should know this, but I really don't think that they, I mean, if I don't know it, that I think that they haven't. But again, you know, this whole ban on absinthe, right? This was like their way of controlling drinking and and not just, um, you know, controlling drinking, but funneling the drinking to the, um, to the area that they wanted to, i.e. the wine that had you know, the, the winemakers, which, you know, probably had bigger lobbying power.
0: In Australia, we get a lot of ads about, um, you know, not drinking when you're driving. It's, you know, it's obviously illegal and it's and it's obviously illegal here in France as well. But you don't hear much about that here. In France.
1: I'm starting to hear more. I was just listening to something on the news, I think. Uh, and I do feel like um there's a little bit of lobbying happening again around um, you know, um this idea that um all cigarette packages here have these um pictures of lungs on them that are all diseased and whatever. And so I was just kind of out of the corner of my ear listening to some um, radio show that was talking about kind of proposing the same idea for alcohol and the idea that we need to remind the, you know, the, the grand public here that this is a, this can potentially be a dangerous substance. So, you know, to be consumed in moderation and also, you know, for example, on my podcast legally, I, I have to say at the end, um, you know, please drink in moderation because it's on a French radio station. I mean, it's in English, but you know, um, so you don't hear about it, but I also don't think you have the same crazy drinking culture in France that you do maybe in a lot of Anglophone countries. I mean, you know, um, like I was just, uh, and I'm not not a stereotypical thing, but I was just in Ireland. I'm like I, you know, would never see people drink as much in France, just out socially as I do there. I take that to back to the U.S. as well, right? Like you just don't see people. Um, I would guess Australia, maybe Canadians are a little bit more, you know, reasonable than, than the other Anglophones, but uh, but I think that French people um, have in general, a different relationship to alcohol. And I think that's changing with the younger generation. And that's why I'm hearing more now about this, this regulation. So, um, so you're right. You don't hear as much about it here, but I think it's starting to come up more.
0: You're listening to fabulously delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, family, French food is wonderful and delicious, and so are these chats with lovers of French food. And they can be enjoyed by any foodie, no matter what their preference for cuisine is. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave a review. A five-star one would be great. So remember, share me around with your friends and family. I love to be shared around. Now let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast. In the 90s, getting back to absinthe, the EU lifted its barriers to production and the sale of absinthe. Now there are apparently over 200 different brands of absinthe. How do we find the best one?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, and especially my understanding, is a lot of the ones that are made in Europe now, you're right, that's a great question. How do you find the best ones? Because a lot of them that are made, they're basically like flavoured vodka. I mean, it's the same thing. We're looking at this base Spirit. They're throwing in enough wormwood to call it absinthe, but then they're throwing in caramel and whatever kind of thing that turns it into a gateway spirit for, you know, young palates that can appreciate the more challenging aspects of absinthe. It's very hard to find the good ones. I think that you have to go with really reputable um, names, you know. So like for I think if you really want to get into absinthe, then you really start have to start doing the research. But I think you can go for something like Kubler, which is a Swiss absinthe, which I think is a very good entry-level absinthe. Or I also really like the um, Pernod absinthe, which is made by Pernod Ricard. So you can find it pretty easily everywhere. And um, it's been a while since I've talked to them about it. But, you know, I think that this is an absinthe recipe that they uh, used when they were k- resurrecting their original recipe from many, many, many decades decades ago. And um, I'll send you a picture when we get off of this. But I'm actually looking at my bar right now. And I've got both the Kubler and the Pernod. And there's a couple other, you know, um reputable names. I think once you want to start getting into, um, getting into it more seriously, um, then you want to, there's some, you know, interesting websites around absinthe and, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I can send them to you for show notes. Some that I refer to sometimes, um, that you can look to, uh, and, and there's also, by the way, some interesting absinthe coming out of the U.S. I don't uh, drink them as often, so I don't have recommendations for a specific one, but I think that you even have uh, a better percentage of good absinthe being produced in the U.S. than here in the in the EU, where there's just a lot of crap being made and has been being made for a long time in places where it wasn't banned, for example, like the Czech Republic. So anyway, long that was a really long answer. Try, try Kubler, try Perneau, and then do some research.
0: Is it like other drinks that it has different tastes depending on where it's from or how old it is or is it the same taste?
1: I don't really find a difference um, in terms of age, but maybe my palate's just not that refined, but um, there are subtle differences definitely depending on who makes it, where it's made, how it's made, what other botanicals they put in there. It's a challenge for people to see these differences immediately because, um, because it is such an intense, like the the wormwood and the, this, this licorice-y flavor is what people call it. It's not licorice, but you know, it's this real anise licorice f- flavor that can be so overwhelming. So I think that, you know, you're really, if you want to taste some differences, you get a couple of bottles and you you spend an evening with it and you have to really kind of work at teasing out the flavors. But some of them have more or less sugar as well, right? So um, some of them are sweeter and there's this uh, tradition of, of dribbling the water on it through the sugar cube, but some of them don't even need that. And this is all just a matter of personal taste, but it's really dependent on the recipe that the um, absinthe is made with uh, that will determine that.
0: They're especially designed absinthe spoons. So how do you actually drink absinthe and why do you need a spoon?
1: Well, um, you, I'm actually looking over at my fountain and my spoons as we speak. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't move my setup. I'd love to be showing you this at the same time. Um, I, um, you, you take your absinthe glass, which usually generally looks like a little goblet with a, with a, like a foot, a base to it, like a wine glass, but more gobbly, you, you fill a few fingers of, of absinthe in there, and then you balance the spoon, which is this metal spoon that kind of has enough ridges to let it balance on a glass and has holes in it. You balance the spoon on the top, you put your sugar cube on top of that, and then you put the whole thing under, uh, usually if you have one, an absinthe fountain, which has, it's a jug of water with a little tap on it that you can just very slowly drip the water through the sugar cube into your absinthe. I don't generally put a sugar cube on my absinthe. So I just drip the water directly into the absinthe. Um, It's a shame because I love the spoons and I love all that paraphernalia that comes with it, but I don't use my spoons. They just are more decorative or for guests. But but so basically the way you drink absinthe is you're taking, you know, one part absinthe to, you know, maybe five to seven parts water and you're slowly adding the water to it um, so that it um, becomes cloudy, which is called louching. So you just add the water slowly enough that it gently louches and becomes this sort of cloudy, opaque, white, green color.
0: Wow. Okay. Are there uh, any cocktails that have absinthe in them?
1: Yes, there are. Yeah, there's some classic cocktails that have absinthe. And generally, when a cocktail pulls an absinthe, it's a very, very light touch. So the Sazerac is, uh, you know, a cocktail that can be you know, very, very popular in New Orleans, and it's generally um, a cognac-based um uh, cognac based cocktail. Some people mix it part rye, part, co- that's a whole different co- discussion, but we're going to just say cognac based, but you do an absinthe rinse. So you, you drop a few uh, drops of absinthe into the glass before you make the cocktail and kind of coat the glass with the absinthe. So it just barely kind of gives this little touch. Um, there's a, another, drink that was popularized by Hemingway. It's called Death in the Afternoon. It was invented by him basically. Fabulous name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, you know, Hemingway is gonna not just take a glass of champagne. He's gonna ask you to put in a shot of Absinthe before you put the champagne in there. So um it's a pretty sturdy drink that's champagne and absinthe. Um there is a Corpse Reviver number two, which is a big um cocktail in the classic cocktail canon and it um also has a drop of absinthe. It's got gin, it's got, oh, I'm testing my memory here. It's got gin, it's got citrus, it's got, um, uh, ch- cherry liqueur, maraschino. Um, and it's got, I think, oh, I want to say Lille, I can't remember, but it's this great equal parts cocktail. And then you drop a little bit of absinthe in there. So, um, so those are just some classics that come to mind. And I think, you know, people are creating more and more, uh, of them as well. And I have a, a recipe that I. Um, I stole from actually a perno recipe that I use quite often with absinthe, which is the green beast, which is absinthe, um, water, lime juice, and it's infused with um, cucumber slices. But I turn that into a punch recipe. So that's something I serve quite often for parties, and it's in a big punch bowl, and people who even say, I don't like absinthe, they love it.
0: Is there a particular time that we should be drinking this, or is it a cocktail for, or is it a drink for all, all hours of the day?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you want to be drinking it over during the day, you want to be putting it in that punch form where there's lots of water and lots of dilution. But I think that's a great, like, you know, if get the girls around for a Sunday afternoon, like I think that would be a great time to be drinking it. Um, I think that it's really nice to have it as like an apparel, because it's, it, it really has a lot of the same flavor profile. They will say it's completely different, but trust me, listeners, you're going to find it very similar as, um, as pasties, right? So, and you know, you think about pasties, you drink it with water, like, you know, as a, as a cocktail hour thing and and thinking that you're in Marseille. So I think it works really well for that, um, But yeah, and you can also do it late at night too. I mean, you know, it's fun just to sit and have this moment where you're watching the water drip from the fountain into your absinthe and, you know, kind of this contemplative moment after dinner with your friends. So, uh, yeah, I think it works pretty well all throughout the day.
0: In Paris, particularly, there's a history with absinthe around its bars and things like that, especially up in Montmartre. And a part of that history is this uh, hallucinations with with uh, but it's probably more to do with the drugs that the people were taking than the actual drink itself what history is there that you could tell us about Paris in absence
1: well I mean I don't know that I know any more history than just sort of this common knowledge thing that you know artists like Toulouse-Lautrec and all of these people that were kind of in the heyday of the Moulin Rouge like this movie that you love they were drinking it at the time right I mean you have um, not just artists drinking it, but it depicted an artwork. So, you know, there's just been a long kind of um, link between the two. Um, And I, think, I mean, I'm this is not my area of expertise. I'm a, more of an expert in drinking it and knowing how it's made. But I also think that it's it's rife for artistic interpretation because one, you can just sort of drink it all day and get have this like nice buzz and work on your artsy work. But also there's like so much um ritual around it as well, right? With with the with the looshing and looking for the fairy and this kind of loosh and and the spoon and the sugar. So I think that that's something that's um Kind of artists appreciate about it, right? And also, there's probably some ritual just around the time of day that they're doing it. So I'm actually just kind of like pulling that out of thin air, but but that's my thoughts on it.
0: Paris cocktail bars is uh, now. Is there anywhere in particular that we should go to have an experience of having our first absinthe in Paris?
1: Yeah, I really like um, Lulu White. Because, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's, it's a modern way to have, um, a absinthe and they've got some nice fountains there. And they used to have a little touch of absinthe in all their cocktails. I think they've kind of changed the menu slightly because not everybody is on board with that. But I would recommend that people go to Lulu White and talk to those guys. You know, there's, there's other places. I think there is a place called, uh, Le, Le Labsinthe Cafe. But, you know, I, I, it's not one of my favorites. There was another one that just closed not too long ago. Can't, can't. um, which was the one that that was in the Anthony Bourdain um, No Reservations show where he went to visit the absinthe bar. That one's closed. So if anybody's looking for the Anthony Bourdain No Reservations one, not around. So I really like, I I like Lulu White for that. It's, you know, you're going to get a modern uh, but worthwhile interpretation, not this just sort of like cliched thing of what somebody thinks. Here's, you know, some crappy absinthe, but, you know, we're going to put it in this traditional Parisian cafe. I just wouldn't bother with that. And there's probably more, but I drink a lot of absinthe at home. So um, there may be more that I'm unaware of.
0: Thank you so much for teaching us all about absinthe uh, today on Fabulously Delicious.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a lot of fun.
0: Since being part of MasterChef Australia in 2013, I've been doing food tours and cooking classes with thousands of fabulous people. That's why I'm super excited to announce new cooking classes here with me in France, the first time since COVID started. 2023 is your chance to come visit me here in Montmorillon and participate in cooking experiences highlighting the regional produce of the area and some of the wonderful dishes and ingredients discussed on Fabulously Delicious. So check out my website via the link in the show notes, com, for more information and register your interest now. I can't wait to cook with you, and also in the future to collaborate with some of the wonderful guests that have been on Fabulously Delicious, so that you will be able to come join me and cook with them as well. So, stay tuned. Merci beaucoup, and let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious with Tanisha Townsend as we discuss the kia. Bon app. Janisha, thanks for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So, today's topic it's all about kia and kia Royale. So, first up, what is a Kir and it's spelled and how's it spelled?
2: K I R. So, Kir is a type of liqueur. It comes in different flavors, and then you mix it uh, for a cocktail. To uh, you can mix it with sparkling wine, or you can mix it with steel white wine. Um, to have this amazing aperitif.
0: The key is Cassis, is that right?
2: Cassis mixed with white wine, yes. Now, of course, they've changed that a little bit too, and sometimes, you know, you can get other flavours because they have other types of uh, liqueur, so sometimes you can get peach. Um, I've had, was it strawberry or cherry? I've had another flavour before um, outside of Cassis.
0: All right, well, because I've got a test for you. I've got a quick little test, shall we say, a little bit of fun. I'm going to name the Kia, and you can tell me what's in oh, it.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Whew. I know, this is going to be fun. Okay. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, so a Kia mm-hmm. Royale.
2: Kia Royale is cassis, cassis and sparkling wine. So the Royale, you know, because they considered champagne sparkling. So
0: um, Yes.
2: Yeah, that's how that
0: came. Okay. Oh my gosh, my French pronunciation on this is just going to be terrible. I can feel it already. A Kir Berichon. I don't know if that's right. B E R R I C H O N. Kir Berichon.
2: Okay, so that's like what? Strawberry or raspberry? In white wine? Red wine and blackberry liqueur.
0: Red wine liqueur. and blackberry
2: liqueur. Okay, that's what they do when they change a, it to-
0: A creme de mer. A creme de mer. Who ever knew there was a blackberry liqueur?
2: They will make liqueurs out of anything. They, anything.
0: <laughs> when I die, they can make a cure, a, a liqueur out of me. It'd be delicious, slightly make bitter. Make a
2: cocktail, you know, out of, from yourself. Yeah. Because like we were saying, talking about monks, um, the original Kier, the name comes from a Catholic priest in Dijon. His name was Canon Felix Kier. So that's how like, the name of this cocktail.
0: Akir Bianco.
2: Can I phone a friend?
0: I'll be your friend It's sweet white vermouth
2: Ah, because then vermouth Bianco Oh, Bianco, yeah, 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 yeah Okay, that makes sense Yes, So many variations Okay,
0: this one should be an easy one Akir Breton
2: Okay, so something from Britain um, From the Breton region Ah Wee What do they have up there? Think apples Cider or apple juice?
0: Wee We,
2: a top parfait, a
0: Kier Imperial. Um, this is a hard one.
2: Mm, Kir Imperial. So there's a liquor, uh, Chambord Imperial, which is made from brass. Yes. Is that what you do? Oh, you are oh! good.
0: Yes. Woo-hoo. Okay. Kier-Normand, that's easy because we just had the Kier-Breton. Right, I was
2: going to say, is this the same as a Kier-Breton where it is, type
0: that. Yeah, so it's instead of bre- Breton cider, it's Normandy cider, which kind of, isn't that the same thing? Oh, no, no. Well, say, don't, really
2: don't let them hear you say that. Say that. <laughs> don't let them hear you say that.
0: If you were listening, anybody that lives in Normandy or Breton, you should just be getting a little bit of noise over this.
2: <laughs> um,
0: a uh, Kier Pamplemousse.
2: Okay, Pamplemousse is grapefruit, so it's got to be some kind of grapefruit liqueur or grapefruit juice. I
0: you know. know. Again, who knew that there was grapefruit li- liqueur? Like you said, they'll make a liqueur out of everything. Um, a Kier Petillant? P E T I L L O N T.
2: Okay, Petillant. So this is probably just because Petillant is what we say for a sparkling wine that's not champagne. So it's probably just the regular um, cassis, and they've done sparkling wine, but not champagne.
0: Well, actually not. Apparently, they swap it with peach liqueur for that one. So maybe they, because they only use the sparkling wine, maybe it's peach liqueur. I don't know. But Quiré Real, uh, we ca- covered that before, was champagne. But then we have things that are Kears but are sort of not, a pink Russian What's that?
2: I don't know. I know a white Russian with uh, Kahlua, no Bailey's, and then a black Russian is with is a um, cocktail with Kahlua. I don't know a pink Russian.
0: So a pink Russian is apparently um, creme de cassis with milk.
2: That made my stomach hurt.
0: I know. I yeah, it would make your stomach hurt, wouldn't it? Speaking of hurt stomachs, a Tarantino.
2: Oh, what does he drink? Oh,
0: Beer, apparently. Well, so it's. I mean, that's exciting. A, key, uh, um, uh, a creme de cassis with beer, and finally, um, a communard. A
2: communard. Hmm. You're really stumping me today.
0: Think about this one's a good one. If you think about it, it comes. It will come.
2: Communism, a community, a commune.
0: It's a red wine.
2: Oh, instead of white. Oh.
0: Yes. So unfortunately, you haven't won $100,000, but you do get to continue as a guest. I'm like, okay. Fabulous. Okay. (laughs) No, I think we did well, 100,000 would have been nice. With a slight help from our friend.
2: That 100,000 would have been nice, though.
0: I know, but instead, we can just have a Kia. Okay, uh, so you mentioned Felix Kier before. Apparently he was the mayor of Dijon at some stage. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so how did, uh, what was the reason for creating the Kier, do you know?
2: It was part of his resistance to the Nazi invasion at that time. So um, uh, the he was just trying to make a cocktail and figure out some, you know, some things to do in his spare time. And so the Nazis actually confiscated all of the red wine. So Kier invented his cocktail using the white wine that he could get a hold of.
0: And because it's made with creme de cassis, Mm -hmm. what's creme de cassis made out of?
2: Blackberries.
0: Or do you call them currants or are they blackberries?
2: Now that's where it it's weird for me. Like As Australians,
0: we would call them
2: currants. currants. Okay, and are black currants different than blackberries? I think it might. I don't know if yes. Okay. So then maybe it's okay. Uh, so
0: for us in Australia, a blackberry is uh, a muir uh,
2: in French. Okay.
0: So, but then a black currant is a cassis. Okay. In French, so that would be black currant. And so have you actually been to Cassisium in Nuit Saint-Jean? No, it's Nuit saint George in Dijon. Have you been there? It's amazing. I
2: have not. I mean, I've been to Dijon, but no, I have not been there.
0: Oh, we have to take you there. Okay. It's just a – basically, it's like a winery, distillery sort of thing for just liqueurs, and their main one is the Creme de Cassis.
2: Well, that sounds
0: amazing. So you need to go there. We need to go there together and drink creme de cassis and the other liqueurs. I'm in. And make sure we have a driver, a designated driver that's not us.
2: Oh, no, it can't be us.
0: Do you have a recipe for us to make a cure at home if we want to make a cure at home? Well,
2: yeah. Is it easy? It is. It's very easy. Um, What I do is I'll take just um, a white wine glass. And I'll pour in, say, like one centiliter or one part of the creme de cassis. And then I will fill up the rest of the glass with white wine. So easy breezy. If you're doing like one part, always say one part because uh, that way, if you want to make this, as like a punch to serve for a lot of people. Or if you're just making one for yourself, it's just one part of whatever, one ounce, one tablespoon, one cup, however you want to measure it. And then at least five parts of the other
0: at least okay so i'll make one tonight so that'll be one bottle of creme de cassis and five bottles of sparkling white wine or champagne so do you think that's going to be enough for me for one night
2: um it may run over into the next night but i think it should hold you i think it should hold you yeah
0: Lyon is the gastronomic capital of France. Some people say that the Côte d'Azur is the heart of Mediterranean food and both places have a special place in my heart and stomach. Having taken many wonderful people on tours of these areas, I'm super excited to be back in the swing of it and doing more fabulous tours in 2023 and 2024. These are all small group tours that are all about food and they won't leave you with an empty stomach, but instead give you a wonderful experience, fabulous memories and a full stomach but above all, a delicious love of France. Check out my website via the link in the show notes, which is andrewpriorfabulously.com for more information and register your interest now. Bon App. Do you recommend any types of white wine? Because there was a traditional Burgundy wine, but if we can't get that uh, white wine, what do you recommend for a kia?
2: So if you can't get like a traditional burgundy, um, white burgundy is Chardonnay. So I would say get um, a lighter style Chardonnay. And by lighter style, I mean one that is not oaked. So definitely get an unoaked stainless steel fermented Chardonnay. Because once you add in the oak, that flavor would be a bit overpowering.
0: And it's interesting because some of the chardonnays here in France, when they're not oak, can be can tend to be a bit sweeter.
2: They can, and that's yeah, and that's why that goes nicely with the uh, with the gear.
0: But why would it be sweeter? Is it is it just the variety of the grape, or the house of the grape, or they adding something to it? What's happening there?
2: A lot of times, oak will like smooth out some of those flavors and take. And I don't want to say take away, but it'll smooth out some of those um, like rich, ripe fruit flavors. So if you don't have something oaked, you have these really fresh, ripe grape flavors. And so that's why it might taste sweeter because fruit, you know, when it's really ripe, fruit is sweet.
0: With the Kir Royale, it's usually champagne, but for some of us that aren't lucky enough to be like us that live in France and have access to a wide variety of champagne, for people, a lot of people overseas, champagne can be quite expensive. Uh, so, can we just use a, spark, a local sparkling wine instead of a champagne?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely Royale. Just pretend. Absolutely. Um, uh, and I would say a Prosecco in that in place of uh, champagne because Prosecco tends to be a little bit uh, sweeter. Um, and make sure it isn't something that's like dry or extra dry because you don't want dry mixed with the, the sweet uh, cassis. You want it to be on the same level.
0: And I've heard recently in the news about champagne, just for a second to get off the Kia topic for a minute, that apparently the champagne or the sparkling wine in uh, in England is doing really, really well and winning awards over champagne. What's that about?
2: They are because they actually have um, the perfect climate for it. Uh, because it gets warm, and then it also uh, they have definite seasons. It gets cold in the winter, and then the um, you know the vines go dormant. But then in the spring, it gets warmer, and it you know kind of eases up. So they have really good conditions in order to grow grapes to make them into a sparkling wine. And um, because it's also uh, where they're doing sparkling wine, it's not the part where it's like super rainy but it gets, like, just enough rain and uh, they have the soil for it. So, yeah, it's. I've had a few styles of UK sparkling wine and I've been very impressed every time.
0: Right. Well, there you go. Um, just a shame that Brexit happened and it's probably going to be more expensive for us now in the UK. When do you drink a Kia or a Kia Royale?
2: This is at Apéro or A. At- because it's an aperitif, so you drink it before dinner. This isn't um, a dessert drink because it doesn't really work with the digestion. You want to have it before because it gets you ready for the meal. It makes you salivate. It gets you like, yes, it's about time to eat. I'm ready. So, yeah, you serve it before dinner.
0: And that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this real thing about uh, with the French about alcohol and wines and perros and things like that, especially in regards to what you're eating. Um, we went and had raclette at some French uh, um, people's houses, uh, friends of ours' house the other day, and they served a the particular wine with the raclette. And then afterwards they served a particular liqueur because they said that, you know, this helps with the digestion of what you've just eaten. So there really is a, a science, so to speak, about the way the marriage between French alcohol, wine, aper- um, aperos, and liqueurs to French cuisine.
2: And they all know it. That's the thing that's so funny to me. They all know it. And when you don't know it, it's like, oh, wait, what? I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to do this now. Oh, it's not time for this. Oh, wait, I, I didn't know this rule. I'm sorry. Let me figure this part out. But, yeah, they all know the rules and um, you, you just have to kind of be nice and cool with a couple of and say, okay, listen, what is the rule for this? Or can you show me how this works or how to do this? Uh, Because it it is definitely something very specific um, when it comes to what time they eat, when they serve certain things, how it is to be served. No, no, you don't chill that. It's room temperature. No, no, one ice cube. It's like, oh, okay. Sorry.
0: But it makes for a better experience. It
2: absolutely does. I have an appreciation for it, sure. Like, I know I'm laughing and kind of joking about it, but I definitely have an appreciation for it. And it has turned me into a much better um, better eater, I'll say, and um, a a better uh, hostess. When I do host something, I make an extra effort. Because it's not even these big grand gestures or things that you have to do in order to make things really nice here it's, you know, having placemats on the tables and having linen napkins and, you know, having a place setting out, little touches like that.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on Fabulously Delicious. Thank
2: you. It was a pleasure.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of our summer series of Fabulously Delicious. Next week, we are going to the Mediterranean and highlighting the delicious food of Nice. So, Come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. And as I always say, remember, whatever you do, do it fabulously. Bon app. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book.